This is Eyewitness News Up Close. A push these days to ban bail bond companies in New York. Critics say minorities and the poor pay an unfair amount of money to stay out of jail while waiting for their trials. This morning we talked to City Controller Scott Stringer about that, about New York City's troubled subway system, the city's proposed new record budget, and the effect of President Trump's tax plan on the wallets of New Yorkers. But first on Up Close, the new president of the Long Island Railroad. Philip Ng is his name. He's now promising to fix the busiest commuter rail system in the nation. So how will the new guy deal with those chronic delays and the chronic frustrations of riders? And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Up Close. I'm Bill Ritter. Philip Ng, a lifelong resident of Long Island who rode the LIRR just about every day to his job as the chief operating officer of the railroad's parent entity, the MTA. He's experienced the LIRR problems firsthand. Last year, it had its worst on-time performance in 18 years. So now, as the new president of the railroad, he suddenly finds himself with a new challenge. Fix the system. And the new LIRR president, Phil Eng, joins us now this morning. Welcome. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too, Bill. So why Thank in you. the world would you want to be president of the LIRR? That's what a lot of people out there are thinking, I'm sure. Well, Bill, you mentioned um, about me being a, a lifelong Long Island native. Um, and with that comes a lot of history in terms of just growing up, um, using Long Island Railroad as a child, using Long Island Railroad as an adult, and knowing how important the Long Island Railroad is to not only myself, but to my friends, my family, the people that I ride railroad with every day. Um, it's something that it touches you when you know how important it is and people need it. They, the options are um, f few and far between. They, they need that system. And it, it's something that I know um, greatest challenge of my life, but also the most um, rewarding challenge. And, and the greater the challenge, the greater the reward at the well, end. Well, that's so true. No question about that. But So you were one of those people, regular passenger. Uh, you, you, you're family road, the, the railroad, you did as a young man, you did it growing up and coming to work for all those years at the Department of Transportation. So you know the frustrations, you felt those frustrations. Yes, I've seen times where um, there's a delay on the train due to mechanical failures or infrastructure failures. I've seen times where weather-related incidents and, and not only do you get um, frustrated, but what the customers and the riders have been telling me over the last two weeks since I've started, um, and I've seen while I was riding with them, is that they really are just looking for the information with regards to when an incident happens, what is it, how long is it going to take, and, and will they be able to get to where they need to uh, within a reasonable time? We don't know. Uh, we can take your word for it. You can maybe tell us if you ever thought, you know, someday when I'm, pr I'm going to be president of this darn railroad and I'm going to change the way things are done. I don't know if you said that or not, but now that you are, what are you going to do? What can you tell people who depend on this, the busiest railroad in the country, commuter railroad, what are you going to do to change things? Well, it's, it's um, about trying to be more proactive with regards to incidents that we know may happen. Um, I'll just use the first weekend as an example. It was um, the weekend of uh, April 14th, and it was a small rain, mild wind coming in on that Sunday night into Monday. And through that weekend, talking with the operation folks, just making sure um, some of the things that we experienced in March, um, even though it wasn't a nor'easter, I wanted to make sure that we were taking a look as we rode those, the, the rails on the weekend for any potential, say, loose, low-hanging trees, branches that we proactively addressed it. Um, it's treating things with more urgency and making sure that we don't say we've been through it before 
and w and and we know how to handle it's it's taking that extra step. So rather than just reacting, doing things a little prophylactically and preventively, and doing it ahead of time. Correct. All right. So so how has the response been? Uh, to people entrenched uh, as workers in the system to, to that approach? I'll tell you, the, the folks have been actually very enthused. They are embracing this opportunity. The feedback so far from our customers, both that I've gotten directly, but also that we've seen on social media, is one of hope. It's one of that they're willing to give us a chance. Um, and the staff have really embraced this opportunity. They have um, been coming up with ideas. I've been meeting with our conductors, I've been meeting with our ambassadors, and I've been meeting with obviously the top staff in the office, and there are a lot of ideas that they, they want to put on the table. Um, some things that we've perhaps tried before, but um, things that we can improve upon. Um, so a lot of it has to do with making sure that we get not only quick information out, but accurate information out. Um, while we're responding to a situation. Successful companies try to make their workers feel like owners. You can't be the owner of the LIRR, but you, the, the philosophy, I think, still applies. Has it not been that approach in the past, having the workers em emboldened and be part of the system? I don't know if that is the actual uh, situation, um, but I do think that sometimes folks, having done a job for so long, get caught up in just operating the railroad. And what we're changing is it's not about operating just trains and moving trains. It's really about the customer service and moving people to where they need to be. So it's, it's taking a different focus and putting, a, putting that importance of our customers into the mix of just running a railroad. When you were with the Department of Transportation, you were there for a couple decades, right? And you worked with Governor Cuomo very closely. Um, yes. When you were there, you were propo if I, my research is right, you proposed adding that third track to the main line, which is proposal. It's, you said earlier there's a design already set up for that. How will that change things, and how long will it take before the passengers see that? You'll have three rails, two tr three tracks, two going in the direction of the commute. Well, I'll, I'll say this. With, when I was at the Department of Transportation, I had the pleasure of actually being part of the project. As, as much of it is it's a Long Island Railroad project, the grade crossings were a crucial part of that, that project. And we're going to be eliminating seven at grade crossings. And we know the situation and the, and the concerns uh, uh, regarding safety. Mm -hmm. uh, we also know that when those grade crossings are down, um, and during the peak hours, it's, it's more than half that, more than 30 minutes out of an hour those gates are down. Um, and then the horns that are blowing. So removing that as part of this project was something that I had an opportunity to work closely with the Long Island Railroad team, but also work with those communities along that whole 10-mile stretch of the third track. Because the, the key part of this, and the governor focused on it, was how do we deliver this project and minimize the impact to our customers, and then at the end of the project, have the benefits that come out of the third track bill. And, and having that third track will allow us to have redundancy in this, this main corridor, that uh, all of our, so many of our branches run through. It allows us to have a reverse peak, um, and it allows us to better serve the customers. And, and at the end, the, it's not just about the folks using that railroad, but it's also ensuring that the work along that 10-mile stretch and the end product serves the communities that the railroad goes through. By having redundancy, you mean if one track goes down, it's not, the whole system doesn't shut down? That's correct. If yeah. one track, we can then pass around, we can route trains in, on the other two tracks, that's correct. Okay, how much is, if you could you know, be president of the whole universe and not just president of the LARRR, and, and you could pick how much, how, uh, the projects that you would want to do, how much would this cost? And does it mean, because that's what people are thinking who take this, does it mean an increase in fares? 
You know, my job right now is to understand the budget I have and be as cost effective and as productive as I can with the, the resources I have. It's, it's in my whole career, um, there's never enough resources to do everything that we would love to do. But the thing is, is to deliver on the key things that we need. And that's ensuring that we take care of the system that exists today. Um, that means maintenance, that means corrective repairs. Uh, and in, a, in that proactive manner that I talked about, because that then gives you the time to deli deliver on those capital projects, such as third track, such as the double track that we have on the Ronkakuma line that's nearing completion this year, um, that will build the system for future generations. It's, it's something that is, is um, crucial that we don't just think about what we need to do for today, but we need to make sure when we're finished, it's better for the future. We, we, just, we don't have much time left, but I do want people to get to know you, since you're saying you want to get to know them. Uh, you, you grew up here, you grew up in Nassau County? I did, I grew up in Williston Park in Nassau County, Long Island, yes. Your, your parents came over from? China. China, and, and they were young people when they came over? Yes, actually my father was 10 when he came over. Um, uh, my grandfather was here, and then my mother came in when they got married. Um, they actually had a Chinese laundry in, in Nassau County, and I've said to others that, you know, that, 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 that instilled in me the, the notion of treating the customer the way they should be treated. They, they had to make sure that when they were doing somebody's shirts or their, you know, their, their, um, their linens, that it was the way the customer wanted. And, and each customer had a unique, different uh, desire, but it was the way they handled and they worked with the customer. It showed that they were listening and it showed that they cared, and, and that's what we, we're, we're doing here at Long Island Railroad as, as we re, restart the, uh, the agency for the future. Your parents came here through Ellis Island, and they had a son who became president of the Long Island Railroad. They must be very proud of him. Yes, my, must be. my mother's yeah. proud, and my father, I'm sure, is watching, and, and um, uh, I'm, I'm excited about this opportunity. And well, you've got millions of people. You've got millions of people rooting for you because it's their commute and the busiest uh, commuter railroad in the, in the system, uh, system in the country. Uh, they hope that you're successful. All right. Filling, thank you very much. Good luck to you. Thanks for thank joining you, us Bill. this morning at Up Close. When we continue from commuter railroads, we go to the subway. How much still needs to be done in the New York City subway system? City Controller Scott Stringer on the subways, on city finances, the new proposed budget, and a whole lot more. That's next on Up Close. Welcome back to Up Close. $89 billion. That's the proposed budget for New York City for the next fiscal year and another record. It's more than $4 billion more than the current fiscal year budget and at a time when New Yorkers are worried that the Trump tax hikes are going to take money out of their pockets. So how do we fund all this? Joining us to talk about this and many other things about life in New York City, the man who has his hand on the collective calculator, <laughs> City Controller Scott Stringer. Welcome. Good to be back. Yeah, nice to have you back. Um, you saw the budget. It's just a proposal, of course. It's got to go through a whole bunch of sure. vetting and the city council process and everything else. $89 billion. Um, mayor says we can, we can do that, but New Yorkers are worried, and, and people who put their hand on the calculator maybe should be a little worried, too. You know, we've sounded a small alarm, given the uncertainty coming out of Washington, the Trump administration, a tax cut that is not good for New York City or working people. I do think we need to be cautious as we go into the final negotiations of the budget. What do I mean by that? We definitely need more agency savings. We have to build up a reserve fund because, as you know, this city gets hit with the unexpected, whether it's, God forbid, some attack, uh, something coming from weather, Hurricane Sandy. And when we do get that uh, uncertainty, we deplete our savings because we have to rush to save things. And I think we need a bigger savings 
program. I think we should be looking at agency efficiencies because at the end of the day, we don't know what the future brings and we have to be ready to uh, engage in our, this world we live in. So much comes in from income taxes, cities, four, more than 4%, people mm -hmm. who live here and work here mm -hmm. get 4% city income tax, and property taxes, both of which are no longer deductible for the most part under the Trump tax plan, uh, which is already, feel, you feel it, talk to real estate agents, real estate property values are starting to drop. People are worried they're not gonna have as much money as they used to because that deductibility is not there anymore. Doesn't that affect the budget and don't we have to worry about that? You talk to any accountant and they'll tell their uh, middle class uh, people who they represent, start saving now because next year you can owe a lot more. That could be a tipping point for the city. So I wanna be prepared. I wanna make sure that we have enough money in the bank, that we have a good savings plan. And look, a lot in the mayor's budget I agree with. We have to invest more in NYCHA. I applaud the investment in the mass transit system because without that system in working order, we're certainly not gonna be the economy we are today. Drives the economy. And it drives yeah. the economy. We are a city defined by our uh, subway grid and our bus lands, and we can't do without them. So we have to invest smartly in the infrastructure that's gonna continue to grow a five borough economy. And yet the mayor has an increase in city employees that comes with pension funds and everything else. So are you worried about that? Look, the mayor's plan is to do more. We do have to bring resources to communities that don't have them. Uh, but I also think we have to start measuring our success and our progress. So I've said that four years ago, we spent $1.2 billion on homeless services. Four years later, we're spending $2.6 billion. But here's the problem. The homeless population hasn't gone down. We still have 23,000 children in the system, 62,000 overall, yet we're spending more than double on the problem. So I think this year we have got to have more hearings, more analysis, more strategies to deal with homelessness. It means a better affordable housing program. It, need, it means more targeted programs so that we can reduce the population. Spending money is good when it works. Yes. Spending right. money and throwing good money after bad that's irresponsible. And spending money you don't have is also not so and good. Let's talk about uh, something you have been involved in. That's the, the mass transit situation. You mentioned it, subways and buses. Big push by the new uh, head of the New Jersey, uh, New Jersey, New York Transit uh, to improve the bus system, get double deckers, make it faster and everything else. Um, is that the right direction? Absolutely. Well, my office, we did the audit on the escalators. We did an audit on the elevators. We showcased what was happening below ground, uh, both in terms of maintenance of the subways and delays. The report we did on buses, talking about the antiquated bus lanes, the fact that technology is not in place, and we identified our buses as the slowest in the nation, at clocking it at 7.4 miles on average. You can walk faster than take a bus. But you know what, Andy Byford and the MTA, they listened and they looked at our report. They said we looked at our report, we looked at the advocates, what they were saying, and now this uh, plan that they've put forth is something I support strongly. It's needed, it's bold. We have to invest more in our buses because at the end of the day, our economy has changed. People are working more in the boroughs that they live in. There are new economic hubs in the Bronx, Brooklyn, and Queens, but yet the bus system doesn't look at those issues. Also, people are working so differently mm -hmm. citywide we need to have bus, ser bus and subway service late at night and starting at 5 a.m. because there's no such thing as rush hour anymore. The work, the work week starts starting at 5 a.m. and goes to midnight because the jobs are changing in the city. So the subway system 
has to, and the bus system, has to align with the jobs of today and the economy of tomorrow. I, I think a lot of people would say there is a rush hour. It just seems to be expanding elsewhere well, and everywhere. Well, but, the, but rush hour is, okay, it's stay away from the subway system at this yep. time? No, no, whenever you get on the train in the exactly. morning, you're going to see a lot of people there. Um, I want to talk about this bail, bail proposal. The governor's proposed it. You have been a proponent of it for a long time. I think step one in eliminating bail completely, that's what the movement is about. Um, but let's talk about the, the, the elimination of ba commercial bail bonds companies. Look, only people who are benefiting from commercial bail are the people who are the bail bondsmen. They're raking in some $25 million a year, taking money or extracting money from the poorest people in the city who have now become part of the criminal justice process, if you want to call it criminal justice. The reality is that poor people, people should not be defined by whether they can get out of the jail if they can post a dollar amount. And I think we should end commercial bail. Uh, I'll give you one data point which I think is significant. Uh, of the 50,000 people in the criminal justice system, 33,000 people are in prison because they can't post bail. 80% are African American and Latino. And that is an absolute outrage in this day and age. Judges should do more and be outraged. There are other ways to ensure someone's desk appearance ticket or returning. You're not to talking about accused murderers. You're talking about people who are busted for sometimes misdemeanors, Mister and they spend more time waiting for their trial because they can't make bail than the punishment would be. Thirty-three thousand people, yeah. and eighty percent are people of color. What are we doing this for? So I've said, end it, just end it. There are other ways to ensure people going to court, and also, why do we have bail bondsmen raking in millions of dollars? Uh, just taking money from the poorest people, so there's a whole revolving poverty issue here. So we did the numbers, we did the report, we're working with our colleagues in Albany, Assemblymember Blake in the Assembly, uh, Senator Benjamin, we need legislation to end this once and for all. Okay, Scott Stringer, thank you very much. One quick, quick question, you got 10 seconds. You gotta run for mayor? That's what everyone's saying, you gotta run for mayor next time. Well, I'm gonna do the job that I was elected to today, and we'll have a conversation about the future uh, in, in, the, in the future. Okay, so we're not taking that as a no. That's right. Scott Stringer, appreciate it. Thank you. Good to see Thank you, you. Good to see you. Mr. Thank Comptroller. You. Uh, just ahead, another big week for the Trump administration in Washington and the historic meeting between leaders of North and South Korea. We talked to ABC News political director Rick Klein and our political consultant, Hank Shaikoff. That's next. Welcome back to Up Close. So how quickly can dictators really change? Not that long ago, the U.S. seemed ready to go to war with North Korea. But now Kim Jong-un seems as if he's auditioning for the Nobel Peace Prize or something. Or to play Gandhi in the next biopics of his life. What's going on here? How much can we really believe that a murderous dictator is suddenly holding hands literally with his avowed enemy, the president of South Korea? It was a good scene, though. Joining us this morning, political consultant Hank Scheinkoff here in New York and in Washington, ABC News political director Rick Klein. The camera's on you, Rick, so let me start there. It, it, it was a good scene. I mean, it was sort of, you know, inspiring. And yet you're thinking, eh, can a tiger really change his stripes that quickly? It's an incredible moment, and I think it's undeniably good if, you, if your interest is in peace in the world. I think the questions will immediately come, does President Trump deserve some credit, maybe at least a little bit? I think so, and there's obviously so much work that has to be done, but, but I, I was struck by how surprising it was to see those images and to have this major step in this era of fire and fury and locked and loaded, to have them uh, grasping hands and crossing into each other's territory, really quite something. Hank, do, does... does the president deserved credit on this and does the, the greater question when you bring the world to the brink of hostilities right. Is that a successful strategy? The president, some of his supporters might say, yes, it, it worked there. Well, it worked for Ronald Reagan as well. Dunce packing missiles in the middle of Germany 
pointed at Russia seemed to get Gorbachev back to the table. In this case, it's very likely that this helped inspire Kim Jong-un, based upon Chinese pressure, of course, right. to get to cross that line. But the idea that that man would be crossing into South Korea, across the, uh, the DMC, is an extraordinary event in our lifetimes. Do we send China flowers, and will then the president... Uh, sort of ease off on the tariff wars. If he's wise, he'll ease off on the tariff wars, let the Chinese make this happen, because really what's at stake here, the Chinese don't want the Americans in that peninsula. That's the problem. Yeah. And can we trust that? Rick, let's talk about some of the, uh, the challenges facing the White House uh, this last week. We had uh, the Veterans Administration nominee to head that department, the president's personal physician in the White House, withdraw from that. Scott Pruitt under questioning by Congress. Uh, where do we stand with this cabinet? It's been really remarkable how many people have left the White House this year. It's a whole sub-genre sub in, in the drama, these cabinet members who are behaving badly. I'm struck by how self-inflicted it is. The, the White House got this whole thing backwards with, uh, with Ronnie Jackson because the president decided to short-circuit the whole circumstance, and he just named him without even doing any vetting, and then they had to do catch-up to try to figure it out. All these Pruitt things, I mean, this is like a character out of Veep when you talk about flashing lights that he liked to go around in and big pay raises for employees and sweetheart deals and a secret phone booth. It is all his own doing. And I think even if you weather the temporary storms, it's still very significant that you have so many cabinet members with such clouds around them. And Hank, it, it, it's not just the, de the Democrats aren't going to be able to do anything. They have no power there. Right. But the Republicans are, are upset about how Mr. Pruitt has behaved as well. Well, the Republicans need to be more vocal about it and start to take a stand that shows they're in charge of something. If not, the public's going to give them a rude awakening come the fall. People don't like chaos. Americans have never liked it. Remember George McGovern a long time ago. He was behind Tom Eagleton a thousand percent. The public killed him. Why? Because he wasn't behind Tom Eagleton at all. You've had candidates who uh, you've worked for uh, and sure. you consult and you say this is what you do, this is what right. you don't do. Right. When President Trump called into Fox and Friends that morning yep. show on Fox News Channel and just launched into things that had his lawyers cringing, what did you think as a political consultant? I thought that I would really like to be in the, uh, in the litigation PR business because that's what's going to be. He, everything that was wrong he did was wrong. I mean, it was impossible. He set himself up for some terrible circumstances. And it was happening at a time when, in fact, they had a pretty good visit with the president of France. Sure. I mean, why would you, why would you act as the president of the United States as if you're kind of not in control when the world is desperately needing you to be in control, when the government's out of control, everything's out of control. All he did was reinforce the most negative storyline. Rick Klein, when, uh, when we saw the president uh, call into the, to the Fox, Fox and Friends that morning show, I, I, part of me wanted to be a fly on the wall in, in the office, in your office, and what you were <laughs> telling the staff, how do we cover this? Uh, the headlines just kept pouring out. And, of course, the president may have given himself more legal trouble because, for the first time, he acknowledged that Michael Cohen represented him during the Stormy Daniels uh, mess. So that, that connects him more directly to Michael Cohen, to the Stormy Daniels issue. Alec, that's why the president isn't giving sit-down interviews, is that he could go in all these unpredictable directions. You could tell even the Fox News hosts weren't sure what they were hearing from him with all of these different headlines sparked off in different directions. But he also said that he did, Mr. Cohen did a very minor amount of work, a very a fraction, a small small fraction of legal work for him, and that undermines his lawyer-client privilege. Exactly. Because there wasn't much there, right? That's right. That actually hurts them in the legal case because it says to, to the world, including the courts, there isn't anything there that we have to worry about. That's the argument that, that the, the lawyers for Stormy Daniels and others are going to use. Hank? Not a great day for the President of the United States. It is troubling. The legal problems are one thing, but the world's view of the United States, especially in this moment as these two Koreas seem to be coming together and there, there's a need for peace in the world, we are undermining our own position by having such chaos in the White House. It's just that simple. Okay. Real quick, we got 30 seconds. Rick, are you going to the uh, White House Correspondents' Dinner on Saturday night? 
Last I, night, I did you go a, last night? I, we uh, taped uh, it on Friday. This airs on, on Sunday. Are you planning to go? Yeah, and, and, and my table is pretty cool, I got I to gotta say. I got a couple of Baseball Hall of Famers there. Dennis Eckersley, Tony La Russa, uh, Brooks Robinson will be joining us. A lot of fun. The, 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 the split screen in all this, Hank and Rick, is that the president is giving a speech in Michigan to rile, you know, rile up his, 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 uh, his base. And he, at the time when he's not going to the, to the uh, correspondence there, it's going to be interesting to see how that played out. Saturday Night Live will have something. It happened last night. When you air, when you see this, we tape on Friday. We will see. Both of you guys, thanks for a great discussion. Thank you. Hank and Rick in Washington. Appreciate it. Thanks, uh, Bill. That's going to do it for this edition of Up Close. Thank you so much for watching. Tiempo with Joe Torres is next. If you happen to have missed any of today's programs, no worry. I'm going to post the video of these segments on my Facebook page Monday, and you'll catch the whole thing. Again, thanks for watching. I'm Bill Ritter. And for all of us here at Channel 7, enjoy the rest of your weekend.